Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. It was reported today that the U.N. has voted to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council over the killings in Bucha. The U.N. General Assembly this morning voted to suspend Russia amid global outrage over atrocities. Moscow's forces are believed to have committed against civilians in Ukraine, even though there is a plethora, a whole lot, a cornucopia of evidence to support the argument that Russia did not do this. The General Assembly voted to suspend Russia uh, with 93 countries voting in favor, 58 abstentions, and 23 other countries along with Russia voting against the measure. For insight into this and some other issues, let's turn to our next guest. Uh, he's a writer at thepolemicist.net, counterpunch, author of The Battle of Ukraine and the War It's Part of, Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me, guys. So uh, because this story uh, broke this morning, wanted we're getting as many people to speak to it as possible. Your thoughts on this vote, Jim Cavanaugh? You know, it's kind of terrible that it's, this is a great example of, uh, you know, sentence first, verdict afterwards uh, uh, from uh, Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> exactly. This, this, something happened in Bucha, you know, and it was bad and it's an atrocity of some kind. And someone should find out for sure what it was. We have taken, the United States has taken, and it is through its media apparatus, has foisted on the world the notion that what Kiev represented this to be has to be taken as true. Okay? And as you say, there is a plethora of evidence that this may not be uh, Russia's doing at all. And one should investigate that. If it were serious, that's what the U.N. would do. That's what Russia asked for the U.N. Security Council to do was to open an investigation, and it was Britain who blocked that. Twice. Exactly. So, you know, but this has been going on for years with Russia, from the Ripple incident, you know, to everything else. They put out a story and a narrative, and it's enforced as the absolute truth. And the countervailing evidence is refused. You know, I just we go back to go back to a, a link to what we're going to talk about. I just posted this thing yesterday from jo- John Stockwell, CIA analyst from the 1970s, mm-hmm. who talked about who ran the Angola War for the CIA from Washington, and he said a third of the people who worked for me were propagandists. They were mi- mi- media people. We had our, uh, we were putting out stories of anything we wanted. We 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 put them out first in in in, in the. Angola, and then to be picked up by the media in in the United States as a story from Angola. We put it out, and we were making up stories about Cuban atrocities. He said we had not one single evidence of a Cuban atrocity because the Cuban forces were in Angola <laughs> fighting for the liberation, and they were. So the CIA was putting out stories of Cuban atrocities. He said we had not one single evidence of a single Cuban atrocity, but we were inundating the world with stories of Cuban atrocities. And, you know, so this happens. We know this happens. And everybody should be skeptical of this. And reports of atrocities from either side should be 
the beginning of an investigation, not the end of a sentence. You know, that, of course, that brings us um, right to our story of the day. Um, just for a background, anybody can go to Politico and find a story that says Ken Delanian routinely sent drafts of his stories to and closely worked with members of the CIA press office prior to publication while he was a reporter at the Los Angeles Times. So Ken Delanian gets fired from the Los Angeles Times for sending his articles to the CIA and he gets hired by NBC News. And now he's got a story in a break with the past. U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. And basically, Kendallanian story, they admit that the propaganda they've been feeding us about chemical weapons and other things are absolute falsehoods. Your thoughts on this, Jim Cavanaugh? Yeah, I, you know, there is nothing new about this, as I just said. You know, <laughs> yeah. Back in the 70s of Angola, and the CIA admitted doing it. And, and first of all, you know, in a war, the warring parties are going to put out the story that they want, and they're going to put out the propaganda that they want. Uh, so that should be expected, okay? And we should be precisely skeptical of the narratives that come out from either side or from the, those who are allies or committed to either side. But what we have to realize is that the United States is on a side here, and it's committed to that. And it considers itself at war with Russia. And the United States government is speaking in war propaganda tones. And what they've acknowledged here, you know, it's amazing because the article starts out about this chemical weapons thing and said we had no evidence. <laughs> but we said it anyway. So this wasn't, that's a little bit different from, well, we had evidence that they might do something, but we didn't want to release it, but we released it, you know, in advance. So there's a whole different levels of out and out lying and saying things you have absolutely no evidence for to spinning a story that you have some evidence for and you want people to believe it. But all of these things are happening and people have to be aware of it. Okay. So they will, as John Stockwell said, make up out of whole cloth stories about atrocities and they will, you know, tell things that are true and tell things in advance. Look, the United States government was right about the fact that the Russians were possibly going to invade, although they were giving precise dates and times that were wrong. But they were, in doing that, you know, this is exactly what misinformation is and disinformation is. And this, this is a demonstration of the fact that, you know, the United States government and its intelligence agencies are the sources, the biggest sources of misinformation and disinformation. But even the admission is a lie. NBC News reports in a break with the past, <laughs> U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. Now, this is NBC News, and I'm quoting. It was an attention-grabbing assertion that made headlines around the world. U.S. officials said they had indications suggesting Russia might be preparing to use weapons in the Ukraine. Now, the NBC explanation is, is as follows. It's one of a string of examples of the Biden administration's breaking with recent precedent by deploying declassified intelligence as part of an information war against Russia. The administration has done so even when the intelligence wasn't rock solid, officials said, to keep Putin off balance. A couple of things. So this is an admission that the U.S. mainstream media outlets are no longer independent journalists. They're mouthpieces of the intelligence apparatus. Breaking with the past? 
What about the Office of Special Plans, which existed from September of 2002 to June of 2003? That was the Pentagon unit created by Wolfowitz and Fife to give the Bush administration officials and the public raw intelligence, unvetted, to back the U.S. illegal invasion of Iraq. And how would these stories keep Putin off balance? His intelligence agency was releasing the G2 before the U.S. so that he wouldn't be blamed for something he wasn't going to do. So, the, so even the admission is a lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and exactly. So they're, they're admitting something and they're trying to turn it into something else. Exactly. It, it's the noble. It's the noble lie. Right, right. And and. You know, and they're again, they're fudging the difference between we're making up whole stories out of whole cloth and we're intensifying things that we think might happen and we have good reason to think might happen, et cetera. So this is a whole spectrum of things. And, and you know, uh, uh, part of the Stockwell thing, this goes back to Project Mockingbird. You know, it's not just, you know, as you, you mentioned, the Office of Special Plans for Iraq, but this has been going on forever. And this is the job, should be the job of journalists, because... The mind that is, being, that, are, that is being targeted here is not the mind of Vladimir Putin. It's the mind of the American public. Exactly. These are stories to gin up the American public to accept us going to war. And that's why this is extremely, extremely dangerous in this circumstance, because they are creating a momentum, an ideological momentum and a psychological momentum for entering into a war with Russia, a nuclear war with Russia. It will be a nuclear war. And we have to realize this. And the job of journalists in this circumstance shouldn't be to be just stenographers and, re- and those who repeat and transmit the f- fictions that the United States wants to create, or even the truth that they, that they want, without investigating it and having some skepticism about it. But what we see now is an absolute insistence that anything that comes out of Kiev or favors Kiev is the truth. And everything that comes out of or favors the Russian side here is disinformation and the mind of Putin, uh, evil mind of Putin trying to fool us. Here's one of the most telling. Uh, I, I, I did a whole video on my YouTube show. I had to, there was so much meat to this, but here's one of the most telling passages in this article. Before the invasion, the U.S. asserted that Russia intended to stage a false flag a, attack against members of the Ukraine's of Ukraine's Russian-speaking population as a justification for war, and that plans included a video featuring fake cor- corpses. The video never materialized. I'm going to argue the video did did materialize this. Go to NBC and and you'll find it. In fact, were the fake corpses moving their (laughs) arms and sitting up? I mean, I thought I was watching the thriller video. There were so many zombies dancing. There were zombies. They were dancing. Was Michael Jackson in that one? Isn't that telling? You want to talk about projection. The Russians are going to make a video with fake corpses? Uh, Jim, your thoughts? And and the logic here is the video didn't materialize, not because it wasn't ever there from the Russians. But because we told them that we said something about it. Yeah. We made up a story about something that wasn't there, and therefore it didn't happen. It only didn't happen because we made up a story that it happened. It's bizarre. You know, there's no evidence at all that the fact that we made up the story prevented this from happening. It just didn't happen. It was never going to happen, probably. I mean, it didn't happen. And now they're congratulating themselves for making up a story about it, and therefore making sure it didn't happen. I mean, it's, it's 
the logic is amazing. And it is, as you say, projection. I mean, there, there, there's an enormous amount of projection going on here, and there always has been. What, they're they're uh, blaming Russia and whatever their enemies are for doing the things that they're most likely and sometimes do do. There are literal videos going around of the buka with right. dead people moving their arms and sitting up and stuff. Yeah, I, I, I got to say, I've seen those, and they look good to me. But I also saw guys, this guy Gonzalo Lira, who has a Telegram channel, yeah, very yeah. good. You know, and he did analysis of that, and he said, look, this looks like this, but this is, there are distortions here with, I'm yeah. not sure about that. Yeah, who knows? I don't know anything about that. We really don't know the, I, I'm not convinced that we know the answer to that. But the biggest problem in, in this is, is the white armbands and the, the, the white ribbons, white claws that are used, which are signs that are used by, were used by civilians in order to say to the Russians, you know, we are not an enemy. And we have a video of the, the, the notorious gang, I forget what it's called, it maybe called the Georgian gang, but going in to, to Kiev and one of the soldiers asking the leader, if we see people without blue armbands, can we shoot them? And he said, F yeah. So they, they, were, shown, they were given orders or allowed to sh- told, and we know that they went in saying we're going to shoot people who don't have blue armband. In fact, if you could speak to the armband piece, because somebody posted on my Facebook page a picture of a soldier with a white armband on, and he asked, and I didn't quite understand the point that this guy was trying to make. So if you could quickly speak to the armband issue. Yeah, in, because there are all kinds of, you know, fighters going around, uh, you know, it's an identify friend or foe, it's called IFF. So, uh, so in the areas that the Russians controlled, they encouraged people to, to wear white armbands to show that they were not infiltrators, you know, Azov or Ukrainian army infiltrators. And the Ukrainians in their areas want people to wear blue armbands. Well, the Ukrainian soldiers wear blue armbands. So in the areas that the Russians controlled, you know, I've seen journalist Patrick Lancaster, this journalist, he said the Russian soldiers told me, put on a white armband and then we know you're not enemy. Okay. So it didn't mean they were on the side of the Russians. It meant they were neutral, okay? They weren't on the side of Ukraine. Okay. But from the Ukrainian's point of view, if you weren't on the side of Ukraine, we're going to shoot you. It's It's important that the white armband indicated neutrality. Or at least that they were more on behalf. So why would the Russians shoot people with the white armbands that were more likely to support the Russians? That's exactly right. Makes that's no the sense. Biggest, that's the detail there that, that is the most damning, the fact that all these people practically had white armbands and they were tied up with their white armbands. And, uh, you know, and, and we have a, a video of the soldiers, the Ukrainian soldiers going in and asking if it's superior, if I see people without blue armbands, not just whether they had white armbands, but without blue armbands, can I shoot them? And he said, screw yeah. Okay. <laughs> Jim Cavanaugh, as always, Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Okay. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. We had mentioned yesterday that uh, our next guest had been 
removed from Twitter. And we now find out that uh, his account has been restored. Let's get some insight into how and why. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, author of Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump, served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War, and from 91 to 98 was a chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thank you very much for having me. Before we get to talking about the Sentinel, the U.S. in unveiling its new nuclear-armed ICBM. Again, today, I believe, you received a notice that you have, that your account to Twitter has been restored. You went through a fairly long process of, uh, or detailed process of reinstatement. If you could explain all of this for the audience, we'd appreciate it. Well, sure. Well, I, I wrote a, a tweet um, a couple days ago, and it, or two days ago, perhaps, and it's a, it's a very short one. The Ukrainian National Police, I wrote, committed numerous crimes against humanity in Bucha. Biden, in seeking to shift blame for the Bucha murders onto Russia, is guilty of aiding and abetting these crimes. Congratulations, America. We've created yet another presidential war criminal. And um, the, 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 the Twitter came back and said that I was guilty of violating their rules against abuse and harassment, that I may not engage in the targeted harassment of someone or incite other people to do so. This includes wishing or hoping that someone experiences physical harm. Um, and I had received a permanent suspension for this, uh, you know, for this transgression. Now, I'm not the world's greatest tweet user. And what I mean by that is I think to be a good Twitter user, you have to be, have somebody who um, is able to fire off 288 characters in rapid order and respond. I, I actually am old school intelligence officer, and I want to make sure that everything I, I write um, is sound factually, um, you know, and, 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 and such. So I, you know, I, I can't have people say, oh, well, you're just blowing smoke. So I took about, you know, this, this tweet was triggered by uh, President Biden's uh, statement um, in Washington, D.C., where he called uh, Vladimir Putin a war criminal. He said he deserved to be <coughs> tried before The Hague. Uh, and he said uh, that this is linked to the horrible Russian atrocities in Bucha. And right after the president gave that, that presentation, uh, the Pentagon came out and said, hey, uh, we got no independent corroboration of what's going on in Bucha. We got none. Um, you know, we, we, we're not discrediting what the Ukrainians are saying, but we're saying we got nothing. So the question is, what, is, what, what motivated the president to say this? Uh, there's no secret intelligence he's relying on, so he's he's only using that which is publicly available. And my assessment of that uh, is that this was a, an action carried out by Ukrainians, not the Russians. And there's a bunch of physical evidence and documentary evidence and video evidence to sustain this. So I went back and reviewed all of that evidence and once again said that's the only logical conclusion I can reach. So... Hence my statement about the, the Ukrainian National Police having perpetrated these crimes. And then for Biden to go out there and, sh and publicly seek to shift responsibility away from the, 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 the Ukrainians onto Russia, I went back and researched the uh, Nuremberg Tribunals. You know, and we hung a lot of Nazi Germans for uh, not for the crime of killing people, but for the crime of facilitating uh, war crimes. And one of the things is to tell lies 
to to willfully tell lies that minimize uh, the crimes to seek to, to divert responsibility, which is what Biden did. So I made sure that every word I wrote in there was accurate. And then I turned that into my appeal. I, I, I detailed all my research and everything to my appeal uh, to Twitter. And Twitter said this could take a long time. Uh, surprisingly for me, uh, there was a storm on Twitter. Um, uh, a lot of people spoke out uh, about the suspension and some um, – some people who apparently have clout in the Twitterdom uh, contacted uh, your Twitter and said that this is unjustified, uh, you, you can't do this, etc. And so Twitter uh, reactivated my account and sent me an email that uh, said they had reviewed my appeal and uh, they found that I had violated no rules. Apparently the rule that I violated uh, in Twitter uh, was put in place <coughs> involving Holocaust denial or denial of atrocities, basically to willfully spread disinformation about an atrocity, uh, etc. Um, but as I pointed out, I'm not spreading any disinformation. Every single word on this tweet had been thoroughly researched with documented fact that's irrefutable. You may disagree with my conclusion, as is your right, mm -hmm. but you can't disagree with the fact base that I used to draw my own conclusion. And therefore, I'm not guilty of any violation of Twitter rules. Fortunately, they agreed, and I got the uh, the account back. Mm. You know, when you were talking about, you know, the fact that what you said was, you know, true and verifiable and and, and, and uh, substantiate, you substantiated all of it, for some reason the name Julian Assange popped into my head. <laughs> but let's, let's get to what's going on here. A couple of things going on. The U.S. unveils new nuclear-armed ICBM. You know, I read this article called The Sentinel. I read this article, and they talk about the cost of it and how, you know, it's reasonable cost and a paltry $100 billion. It's going to do wonderful things. And I thought to myself, Here's what I thought about. I think it was Carl Sagan who said nuclear uh, nuclear weapons, it's like three people standing waist deep in gasoline and one of them says, I got a match. And the other says, oh, yeah, I got two. At any rate, your thoughts on this wonderful new nuclear weapon, which we can use to eliminate all human and, uh, 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 kind and put us all out of our misery once and for all. Scott Ritter. Look, there was a time when. In the height of the early stages of the arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union, that ballistic missiles, uh, ground-based ballistic missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles, were um, seen as the weapon of choice. Uh, we, you know, bombers were, um, it was difficult to, to guarantee that a bomber could penetrate air defense, um, and bombers had a lot of uh, infrastructure associated with their deployment, etc., um, submarine launch missiles had not been perfected yet. And so the ballistic missile was, was, was it, uh, but it became more and more complicated because as we built missiles, the Russians built missiles. Um, and then it became a, a, a case of, well, we gotta, we gotta make these missiles survivable. So we put them in silos. Uh, then we hardened the silos. Um, and then we spread the silos out. And the Russians responded by building missiles that had multiple warheads, each one of which could be targeted against a given silo. And so we built even more silos, more missiles. Um, and at the end of the day, we had created this system where all of the missiles that we were building were designed to be fired at the Russian missiles, which were designed to be fired at our missiles. Um, it's just stupid. Um, and as we got into arms control, and we began to reduce these missiles, 
uh, their utility became less so because there was a recognition that you know the the, the day of having ten thousand or a thousand um, you know ground launch ballistic missiles is over. Now I think we're you know we're we're down to below four hundred um, of these missiles and. There's no legitimate justification. Today we have submarines, which have uh, you know very accurate missiles that operate um, you know close to the coast and near nearly they're, they're nearly in, you know they they can't be attacked. They're silent. They run deep, etc. Um, we have bombers that are stealthy now that can penetrate, uh, and these missiles still reside in hardened silos in a in a specific point on the ground. Uh, you know the people that man the missiles today are demoralized because it's a do-nothing job um, because, you know, nobody believes we're going to use these missiles because it would be suicide to do so. And if we do use the missiles, uh, they understand that their sole purpose is to serve as what's called a, a warhead sump. The only reason why we have ground-based ballistic missiles today is to compel any potential enemy to fire a significant number of their warheads at, at these missiles. It's called a warhead sump. It's about the dumbest thing on the face of the earth, and everybody recognizes this as being stupid. And so most people who believe in nuclear disarmament and the responsible um, you know, uh, disarmament of our nuclear force say the thing that's got to go is ground-based ballistic missiles. There's no justification for them. There's no need for them. Let's negotiate them out of existence. Um, but no, the... The, 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 the missiles come with a lot of history and, um, you know, a, 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 a big, um, you know, political support base in, uh, in Congress uh, who appears to love to spend up to a trillion dollars to uh, create a new generation of missiles. The current missiles we have, the Minuteman Three, they're aging uh, to modify them, to upgrade them uh, would be very expensive and you don't get much bang. The best thing to do is just to get rid of them. Fill in the silos, blow them up, turn a couple into tourist hotel, hotels, and, and, and call it, it over. But instead, at a time when we have you know uh, difficult economic times, uh, you know increased uh, competition for taxpayer dollars, Congress feels like it's okay to uh, to spend a, a trillion dollars on on building this new missile that gives us nothing, nothing. It, it does nothing to change the reality that these missiles are merely expensive toys that we don't ever plan on using that are in the ground for the sole purpose of attracting hostile nuclear warheads to those areas. Um, and people have to understand that that doesn't sound as good because people say, well, isn't that good if they're hitting air or they're not hitting the cities? No, because there's hundreds of these, which means thousands of warheads will have to be fired at them because you never just target one warhead to one system. You put two or three on each silo to guarantee it's collapsed, which means that all of these massive nuclear bombs going off are going to suck all the soil into the air. And guess what we get? Nuclear winter, dust Vidania, goodbye. It's all over. Now, what rational person would say, well, that's okay. That's what we're going to do. None which proves that Congress is irrational. Asia Times reports the move ensures continuity of strategic deterrence and costs less than modernizing the 1970s LGM-30G Minuteman missiles, 
which have already been in service for 50 years. So you've let us know that this isn't really needed. You've let us know that the Sentinel doesn't make us safer. I would personally feel safer if instead of replacing the Minuteman, we replace Tony Blinken, Victoria Newland, and Jake Sullivan. So what what this really says to me, and we only, we got about two minutes two minutes left, is that the United States now is falling victim to its own policy, the 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 Ronald Reagan '80s policy of escalation, which was designed to force the uh, USSR at the time to escalate and spend and basically spend themselves into oblivion. It seems as though we are now falling victim to our own logic and policy. Absolutely. Look, the, 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 the missile systems that are prompting this modernization are the new Russian missiles that Vladimir Putin announced in 2018. Uh, these missiles cost the Russian government about 15 to $20 billion. We're responding with a system that's going to cost us over a trillion dollars. I'm not a I'm not a math genius, but that just tells me that there's something wrong with that offset. Two, it's going to cost more than a trillion dollars because you can't tell the United States is incapable of staying on budget with any military project at this scale. We know that the contractors have underbid, have lied about the cost. We know that Congress knows this, and yet they they've approved this. And as this goes forward, it's going to be the same um, fiscal pattern that we saw with the F-35 cost overruns, technology failures, things aren't going to work. They're going to have to be redesigned, redone. It's going to take longer to field this missile system. By the time it's fielded, it's going to cost two or three times more than what they originally said. That's just a statement of reality of the current state of play with the American military industrial complex. And also, we have about 30 seconds. Understanding technology, by the time this gets online, won't, will the technology that it's based upon be antiquated? It's already antiquated. Oh, okay. The Russians, uh, the Russians already have. None of these missiles can defeat Russian ballistic missile defense systems. None of these missiles can survive a Russian first strike. So this is just stupidity all around. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Glad you're back on Twitter, and we look forward to having you back. Well, thanks a lot. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. U.S. warns China would face sanctions similar to Russia for invading Taiwan. The U.S. has also been threatening to take action against China if it helps Russia avoid Western sanctions. What other problems is the U.S. creating for itself by engaging in this jingoistic rhetoric? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst. He's traveled extensively in the Middle East and in Latin America, and his latest book is entitled Kamala Harris and the Future of America, an essay in three parts. Caleb Moppin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. So yesterday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that the U.S. would be ready to use sanctions similar to what has been imposed on Russia against China if Beijing were to invade Taiwan. Caleb, 
I need a greater mind than mine to answer this question, so I'll turn to you. Can you tell me one instance where imposing sanctions achieved the stated result that they were stated to to be used for? I cannot think of one instance where they've worked and the most recent circumstances involving Russia in sanctions say the sanctions aren't working either. Caleb Boppin. Well, you could argue that throughout the 1990s, uh, those genocidal sanctions that were placed on Iraq that killed over 500,000 children under the age of 12, that Madeleine Albright uh, said she felt were worth the cost. Uh, you could argue that maybe those sanctions after you know a, a decade um, maybe weakened Iraq to the point that the U.S. invasion that finally took place in 2003 uh, was effective uh, and, and able to break apart the Iraqi Ba'ath socialist government more quickly because of years of, of sanctions and economic warfare, you know, building the case for it. Um, but aside from that, um, and even that instance, you know, it, it resulted in, you know, an intervention, you know, ultimately an invasion by the United States. It wasn't that uh, the, the government just collapsed. Even in that case, uh, you know, you're not really seeing a clear, you know, c- connection between sanctions and results. So really, I can't see the sanctions having the intended result. Um, but this points to the fact that at the end of the day, these sanctions are not really about deterring countries from doing one thing or another. They're about ensuring U.S. economic dominance. Um, and they're uh, kind of an excuse uh, to impose laws and restrict the economic development of independent countries. Uh, that's essentially what's going on there. It's the United States trying to beat, beat back countries that are independent, that are developing, that are competitors on the global market. And using uh, international and geopolitical and human rights excuses in order to do so. You know, Caleb, I also think it's a, this is an indication that the Biden administration is in way over their heads. They've recently sanctioned the top exporter of commodities in the world. There are three world powers. So one of them was the top exporter of commodities. They sanctioned them. The ruble has returned to where it was before the sanctions. And many look at it and say, well, they sell gas and oil and stuff. The prices of that stuff has dramatically increased. They're probably going to maybe even do better. Okay. So now that didn't work. So now they're going to sanction the top industrial power in the world. And they seem to think that somehow that's going to work out. These people that in the, in the Biden administration, I hate to use the word stupid, but to me, that wouldn't even be, that would be like referring to a tidal wave as moisture. These people are so incredibly. Uh, yeah, you don't uh, want to insult the stupid. Exactly. I mean, the idea you you're gonna you're. I'm out of words, Caleb. Help me. <laughs> well, here. Be, and before me, before please. you respond, let me throw in God. one more one more thing. I always understood that the intent of the sanctions against Russia was to cripple the Russian economy that would foment regime change. Caleb, you've probably seen the same studies I've seen. Right now, President Putin is polling around 82 to 84 percent approval rating. I don't know that there's a, that this pressure on the economy is is achieving the desired result. Well, no, it's not. I mean, there was a dramatic drop in the ruble, but then Vladimir Putin stepped up and said, all right, now these countries that have determined that they have to keep buying our natural gas, they're going to have to pay for it in the ruble. And uh, that resulted in the ruble rising. And it's, you know, again, there's a situation here where uh, the United States doesn't quite understand that if you, you know, if you take off the gloves and suddenly you're having a uh, no holds barred match where you're doing things to a country that you before had promised to never do, 
uh, that country is likely to respond and do things that they had promised never to do. And, you know, when there's, you know, when, when one guy brings a knife to the fight, another guy can also bring the knife to the fight. And so, yes, the United States uh, took these dramatic moves to try and crush Russia's economy. So Russia responded and they said, if you want gas, uh, you're going to have to get it into ruble. We might give a special exception here and there to a country, but you can see us about that. And, uh, you know, you'll really have to be, you know, you'll be at our mercy when it comes to that. And, of course, the ruble shot right back up. Uh, Meanwhile, Putin is at this point quite popular um, because there has been mass support in Russia for the people of Donbass for quite some time. And there has been some feeling that what took place in Ukraine in 2014 was humiliating for the country. Uh, And there's been anger um, at seeing the Second World War Memorial destroyed. And many people in in Russia feel like uh, like this is a moment where uh, where the strength of the country is being recognized internationally. Uh, We have a Russian leader who is saying to the West, you're not going to get away with this anymore. You shall not pass, uh, as they said during the Spanish Civil War in Spain. Um, And that's quite a popular move. Um, And there's many people in Russia who vehemently approve of what he's doing. Then I must point out that support for Putin uh, is the strongest among the Communist Party and among folks that are are more admiring of the old Soviet Union. Uh, you know, the, the anti-Putin opposition, they make a huge deal out of these protests. Uh, this is happening among wealthy people uh, that are aligned with uh, Navalny and his uh, pro-U.S. anti-corruption movement that is clearly being supported by American intelligence and promoted by American media. Um, they're from some of the wealthiest people in the country uh, who spend a lot of time on social media, Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, which now it's much harder to get access to in Russia. And those folks uh, that are enamored with the United States, uh, maybe some of the people who voted for Ms. Simchuk, uh, who was a candidate in their recent election, uh, you know, that's who the, the, the dissent and the opposition is coming from. But as far as the, the left, the communists, the trade unionists, um, you know, Progressive forces in the country think Putin is, you know, right on the money. He's doing the right thing. Uh, you know, nationalist forces are obviously supporting Putin here. Um, and that there seems to be a pretty broad support for Putin in the country. Um, of course, the way U.S. media is going to report on that is they're just going to say, oh, that's just propaganda. And they're all brainwashed and blah, blah, blah. And under the surface, they all hate him. That's just simply not the case. Um, and the, the Ukrainians are doing a lot to uh, to make sure that there is massive support for Russia and their operation uh, when they've done the horrendous things they've done to prisoners of war. The videos were seeing. I mean, it's like the, the Ukrainians are not winning themselves any favors uh, with their actions. And we've even seen some talk from American media talking about how there needs to you know, be a little bit of a changing of tone. Uh, in how U.S. officials talk about the Russian military and how some of the actions of the Ukrainian uh, forces and how they're treating uh, captured Russians and, and sending videos to relatives and such, and, and how this, at the end of the day, is making Putin more popular, is making support for the, uh, for the intervention more widespread. So I think we're at the point uh, where, yes, Putin's very popular. Yes, these sanctions are not really going to change that. Uh, and the Russian economy look, Russia's going to fight back. You push on their economy, they push back, and the ruble is not going anywhere. So there you go. Caleb, another thing is they say we're going to, uh, Biden says we're going to further increase Russia's economic isolation. Well, two things. (laughs) None of the countries in the Middle East 
in Africa, in the Caribbean, Latin America, not in Asia, with a, a few minor exceptions, um, have uh, supported the U.S. with their sanctions. Um, and if the ruble is strong and Russia's um, pegged to make more in gas and oil than they did in the past year, and might I add, the United States itself has dramatically increased the amount of oil that it's buying from Russia be out of need. The idea that Russia is economically isolated seems it seems that the U.S. leaders are living in this either living in this delusional reality or they're trying to convince the American people through propaganda to live in a delusional reality. Maybe they don't know the definition of isolated the same way they seem not to know the definition of imminent. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, just yesterday there was a meeting at the United Nations about these bio labs, and it wasn't just Russia who attended. Brazil attended, China attended, many countries around the world listened to Russia's concerns about these bio lab facilities that are tied in with the Pentagon, that are tied in with Hunter Biden and his investment firms, and listened to Russia's concerns and took them seriously. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there were a couple of U.S. allies like Norway that, that, you know, that just didn't go along with it. The United States, the United Kingdom didn't attend. But basically, the whole world came together to say Russia's got a point here. These, these bio labs where they're doing experiments with, with germs and potential chemical weapons, potentially, uh, you know, that's a concern. And the United States just said, oh, that's a crazy conspiracy theory. Nobody believes that there was, you know, bio labs in Ukraine even though Victoria Nuland mentioned them. Well, the whole world knows it. Russia just had a big meeting about it at the U.N. with all kinds of countries there talking about it. Um, and uh, the United States is just kind of sitting there pretending it doesn't see, uh, you know, pretending pretending that, uh, that this didn't happen. If anything, we're seeing the isolation of the United States at this point um, because, you know, so much of what's going on just kind of depends on the USA, assuming it has the media dominance it once had. Russia will, say, will state blatant facts, things that are true, and U.S. media will say, that's a crazy conspiracy theory. You couldn't possibly believe it. And all of the U.S.-aligned media, like the BBC and like Al Jazeera and France 24, will repeat that. Um, but at the end of the day, a lot of people in the world are just looking into the facts and they're saying, no, Russia's got a point here. You know, they may not be right about everything, but they've got a point. China seems to have a point here. And, and the USA is, is not understanding. They don't have the ability to make things true or make them untrue by declaring them like they once did. Maybe during the 1990s, that was the case. They could, they could do that, but they can't really do that at this point. And, and it's, they're kind of embarrassing themselves by overestimating their own strength. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman testified before the House Financial Services Committee and warned that the U.S. would impose sanctions on China if it helped Russia in its war in Ukraine. China has strongly denied U.S. claims that it was considering giving Russia military support. Last month, U.S. officials told media outlets that Moscow had asked Beijing for help, but U.S. officials told NBC News that the claim lacked hard evidence. This we, we've got about a minute and a half, Caleb. The United States either seems to be continuing to ignore the statements by China and Russia and trying to spin the realities when if you just listen to what Xi says, he's telling you. If you just listen to President Putin, he's telling you. But the, all of this seems to be falling upon deaf ears, Caleb Moppin. Sure. I mean, the United States seems to be isolating itself, increasingly getting into its own little echo chamber where things are true or not true because they say so. 
where anything that you know goes contrary to the narrative is dismissed as propaganda, even if it's true. Hunter Biden's laptop is true, is real. You know, the bio labs in Ukraine are real. That's true. They exist. Uh, and Russia's economy is not falling apart because of sanctions. Uh, and so increasingly, we're seeing the United States kind of become isolated and be kind of what they describe their opponents as being. Uh, they claim that there's some kind of, you know, echo chamber of Russian media or whatever. It looks starting to look that way with Western media as they don't acknowledge pretty obvious facts. And Joe Biden seems to be more authoritarian than the authoritarians that he claims are authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Caleb Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Sure thing. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Alex Saab's lawyers demand U.S. courts uphold diplomatic immunity. This is according to Venezuelan analysis. Warn of dangerous precedent. Saab's defense team submitted the official diplomatic papers issued in 2018 by the Maduro government two years before his arrest. What does this mean for Alex Saab, and what are the political Pro- or potential problems for diplomats going forward. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's the regional election observer last year for the Venezuelan elections, co-founder of North Florida's Hands Off Venezuela, and president of the Hands Off Venezuela Club at the University of North Florida, Alex Suarez. Mr. Suarez, welcome to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. So if you could explain exactly what the defense team submitted and what precedent this is now setting as it relates to diplomatic immunity. So there's two parallel judicial processes happening in the United States right now. There's one in the Georgia courts and there's one in Miami. And in Miami, I attended the arraignment and the hearing of Alex Saab. Um, And I can tell you that Miami, they can't do much at this point. They've been frozen and what I mean by that is uh, the other uh, defense, the other lawyers as part of Alex Saab's defense team, like David Rifkin, um, they're working in the Georgia courts right now for them to uh, recognize Alex Saab's diplomatic immunity. If they recognize the diplomatic immunity, that will obligate the Miami courts to release him and send him back to Venezuela. So um, what are your thoughts? I mean, there are two things. It's kind of like the um, there's two ways to look at it. It's kind of like the the um, uh, uh, Julian Assange case in that if you look at the letter of the law and international law, clearly Alex Saab was acting on behalf of Venezuela. Venezuela recognizes him um, and authorizes him as a diplomat. The countries that he received him authorize him as a diplomat. So under international law, clearly he's a diplomat. But if you see this as just another example of United States lawfare, where they use the law, the, the, the they, they use the guise of international law for a, an imperial policy, um, it seems as though the courts are just another tool. What are your thoughts on how this works out? 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Assange. Um, one of um, Saab's international lawyers also represents Assange um, Garzon. Um, and their charges are actually similar because they're both um, accusing them of conspiracy. Um, so they were uh, accusing Assange, uh, of course, falsely of uh, conspiring to hack. And the only remaining federal charge, which could still face 20 years in prison for against Alex Saab, is conspiring to money launder. But they're not even charging you with money laundering. And the other seven federal charges that they had against them, they dropped. And they claimed it was because of a deal with Cape Verde, who originally was holding Saab. But that's false, in my opinion. Um, they had had no evidence. So they're just basically on off, uh, you know, some testimony uh, that apparently he conspired to money launder. What he really did was defy U.S. sanctions and successfully bring aid to Venezuela through his diplomatic connections. And so as a retaliation for Alex Saab's effort and success against the U.S. Uh, illegal unilateral sanctions against the people of Venezuela, that's according to the U.N. that they're illegal. Um, out, of, out of retaliation, they captured him a couple of years ago in Cape Verde, physically and psychologically tortured him, and then recently extradited him to South Florida, where this process goes on. What are the potential problems that the United States is setting up uh, in terms of uh, for, for diplomats uh, going forward? One of the things that I remember hearing uh, about, for example, uh, Guantanamo Bay, it was that as it relates to the Geneva Convention, is that the United States has to be very, very careful about how it treats prisoners because we don't want other countries to to violate the rights of, of American prisoners. What does this do potentially in terms of how diplomats are treated, uh, particularly if the United States can, continues down this path? Well, um, Alex Saab, there's documentation that shows he's been a Venezuelan diplomat since 2018. And one of the claims that was coming out um, in the fake news is that, well, they only gave him diplomatic immunity in late 2020 after he was captured. That's absolutely false. Um, you know, and the United States, even though it's a signator, unlike being a, not being a signator of the ICC, one of the few nations that doesn't sign with the ICC, the United States is indeed a signator of the Vienna Convention. Um, and, and so that means that all of our diplomats, like most of the diplomats in the world, are under uh, diplomatic immunity. Um, and so that puts all our diplomats at risk. And the United States first violated it in recent history in 2019. Uh, you know, Garland knows that I was one of the ones that was defending the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C., that they eventually illegally uh, took over after the rupture of diplomatic uh, relations with Venezuela. And so that was a violation of the Vienna Convention then. Now we see a diplomat who two years prior to his capture had been functioning as a diplomat um, and trying to help and bring aid to his people. Uh, you know, that they've captured him and not respected the diplomatic community, and he wasn't even coming to the United States. They kidnapped him in a third country and brought him here. This is unprecedented, and it is very dangerous, and it puts all of our diplomats at risk for retaliatory action in other nations. Your thoughts on this in light of what happened recently with the U.S. Uh, going down to Venezuela and trying to, I, and I'm going to use this word guardedly, strike a bargain for oil um, when it seems to me like it was still mafia tactics because, I mean, the first part of the bargain has got to be you give our diplomats back. But your thoughts on this in light of the U.S.'s failed attempt and, and add this. In arguing that Juan Guaido was the legitimate president and when they needed something, they actually went to the had no choice but to um, recognize the legitimate president. Your thoughts on all of that? Absolutely. I mean, Garland, I was telling you the other day that it's been about a year and a half that Guaido is not only no longer part of the National Assembly, he, he was elected out. He was thrown out of his own party. 
So even the opposition are, are fed up with Guaido. How can you say this is a functioning president? And yes, that is a clear contradiction. Uh, just recently, the prosecution in Georgia claimed, well, he's not a real diplomat because we recognize Guaido. It's like, well, then why, just a few days prior, did Biden send officials to negotiate Maduro the purchase of, of oil? This is the contradictions that they have. The ICC opens a probe into Venezuela, signs cooperation deal with the Maduro government. The Venezuelan government disagreed with the Hague-based court opening a formal investigation but respected the decision and called for positive complementarity. The Maduro government and the ICC signed a memorandum of understanding to facilitate cooperation after Chief Prosecutor Karim Khan decided to open a full-scale investigation to alleged human rights abuses in Venezuela. This, to me, speaks volumes in terms of how President Maduro respects the rule of law. Absolutely. His government has nothing to hide. They're in cooperation with the ICC, even if they don't agree with their um, initial findings. And one of the things I found out when I was observer last year is that they have um, an organ of uh, the government that's completely independent of the, the Socialist Party that's in power there in most of the regions. Uh, it's the CNE. And just as there's an independent organ of the CNE, there's an independent organ of the Truth and Justice Commission um, that back in 2017 um, investigated all these allegations of if the state was too rough on a lot of the protesters who were committing acts of sabotage and terrorism. Um, and they found that only 28 percent of the deaths uh, were caused by security officials, in many cases of uh, self-defense. And uh, that's a comparison to 42% being verified of opposition violence causing the deaths, and then the rest are uh, under different circumstances. So um, the ICC needs to consider that. The ICC is not looking at uh, the abuses in Colombia. They've closed that case, let alone the abuses of the United States. So this is the hypocrisy of the ICC, but because Maduro has nothing to hide, He's cooperating with them and being transparent with them at this point. You know, one of the things that happened today is the U.N. voted that to throw Russia off of the Human Rights um, Committee, I believe it was. And, the, and and when you look at this, Ukraine, the Ukrainians made a complaint against the Russians of human rights violations. The Russians then ask the U.N. twice for um, an investigation an unbiased investigation. The U.N. refused an investigation, but then pretty much found the Russians guilty. When you look at these kinds of things, does it make, cause you to look at the International Criminal Court, the U.N., etc.? To look at some of these international bodies is nothing more than tools for the U.S. empire? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the only time the ICC ever uh, tried to charge a European for war crimes was Milosevic, and he died before they could um, convict they always try to go after people in the third world, Africa, Latin America. And so, you know, if the ICC wants to uh, regain uh, some type of legitimacy in the world, especially in the, in the developing nations, I hope that they handle the, the Venezuelan case properly and that they look at other uh, actually repressive governments like Colombia. Uh, there are presidential elections coming up in May this year in, in Colombia. And hopefully that, that uh, the very unpopular, you know, basically fascist, who's U.S. backed fascist, is in power there now. Uh, that he uh, will be uh, voted out. But yes, he's been caught, you know, being very repressive against uh, peaceful protesters. And he's, he's blamed a lot of those protests on Maduro, but these are Colombian people on their own going against his corruption. And rather than the ICC look into that, you know, within a few months, they shut all that, that investigation down and they're only focused on Venezuela. I want to go back to uh, something that you you just said. You were giving some statistics on the percentage of deaths. And I think you said 28 percent of the deaths were caused by 
Venezuelan security forces. And I think you said like 46 or 48 percent of the deaths were caused by the opposition. Any 42 percent confirmed by the opposition. And then there's okay. different circumstances. Yeah. OK, thank you. Any indication in terms of those opposition forces, how many of them or what level of influence did NGOs, particularly those funded by the United States, play in those uh, engagements by opposition forces? Hopefully that question makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, USAID and um, other NGOs that have operated um, in Latin America have been caught uh, to have ties to the CIA, financial ties that are minimal, if not agents actively engaged um, in infiltration and sabotage. So the NGOs, we see that they're being used, you know, they're saying that, you know, they're there, for example, you know, just to defend human rights, but they're there actually, you know, smuggling in guns and, and financing uh, safe houses in places where uh, these violent extremist oppositionists uh, are hiding out and to, to go into these acts of sabotage. Um, they go into working class uh, barrios or neighborhoods in Caracas, for example, and they use metal uh, strings and they put them across the road so that when they when a person drives by in a, in a scooter that they get beheaded. They've done vicious acts like of that and of lynching of people, anybody wearing a red shirt, they assume that they're a chavista, that they're a supporter of the government. Any Afro-Venezuelan, there's many Afro-Venezuelans, they've lynched them, they've burned people alive. So they've done all these acts of, of, of terrorism, and you don't see the ICC trying to go after one of these NGOs or oppositionists that have done the majority of the violence. You know, in fact, when I was in Venezuela two years ago as an uh, election observer, when I went, I was way out in, you know, in the mountains in these small villages, and they were all, you know, mostly all Chavistas there. And um, I saw uh, soldiers all around the uh, polling places. And I said to the people, you know, through my interpreter, my, my interpreter, I said, aren't you scared with the soldiers and all of these guns? And they said, oh, no, they're here to protect us. We're scared when they're not here. So that's a perfect example. One minute. Yeah, they call it the Young Civico Militar, which means the civic military union between the people. So, yeah, their interaction with the military is quite different than ours. Alex Suarez, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And there's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. U.N. votes to suspend Russia from Human Rights Council over killings in Bucha, as we've been discussing with uh, other guests earlier in the show. Uh, This is one of the things that really shocks me, is that Russia was suspended amid outrage over atrocities believed to have been committed. There still is no evidence that Russia did this. And in fact, there is more evidence to the contrary than to the affirmative. For insight into this and some other stories, we're going to turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. My pleasure. And let me also say 
and I'm repeating myself, but I think it's very important. So apparently the atrocities that we know that were committed by Saudi Arabia in Yemen, eh, that doesn't matter. Oh, and the atrocities that we know that have been committed by Israel against the Palestinians, oh, eh, that doesn't really matter. But we've got reports of, but no validation of, and now all of a sudden Russia's got to get kicked off of the Human Rights Council for the UN, Laith Maroof. Yes, definitely. The rest of humanity is watching and uh, smirking probably at the flagrant racism. And uh, here, you know, we have supposed massacre of white, blue-eyed people. Um, and therefore, we're all supposed to, uh, you know, take that as the worst kind of human atrocities. <clears throat> you know, like a few days ago, there was multiple postings from American officials talking about how the crimes in Ukraine that supposedly the Russians are committing are worse than whatever was committed in Iraq. I mean, you don't have to <laughs> be a scientist uh, or, uh, or be on the ground in Iraq to just look for a few photos of the total destruction of uh, Mosul. And uh, you can understand the million and a half people dead during the war as a result of it in 2003, and a million and a half others dead from the sanctions for the decade before. It's uh, unbelievable. Uh, I mean, but look, you have to remember that this comes in an actual historical record of how the West speaks about atrocities in Europe we're all supposed to be around the world uh, remembering that the atrocities of the Nazis, although they're being rehabilitated right now in Ukraine, are the worst ever. And uh, the Holocaust is the worst crime in history of humanity. We should always, as people in Africa and Asia and the Americas, have to forget ourselves, forget our, the 120 million indigenous people in the Americas and Australia that were genocided by the uh, European uh, peoples and their colon colonies. We have to remember, forget the millions, the two-thirds, uh, half of, or to up to two-thirds of the populations of Africa and Asia that were genocided between the 1860s and the 1960s. None of that counts, apparently. You know, I think the thing about it is, uh, and we'll go on, here's my first thought. You've got two parties at, at, in a war. One party says the other party did something bad. Russia says to the UN, I want an investigation, an impartial investigation twice. The UN says, no, we don't need to do an investigation. We will convict you. I mean, to me, it discredits the U.N., but at any rate, so let's move forward. Let's start with U.N., with uh, uh, Yemen. The ex-president Hadi transfers power to leadership to a leadership council in what's considered a victory for Yemen's resistance. What in the world? It sounds like there's interesting things going on with, your, with, with Yemen. Your thoughts on that, uh, Alayth? Oh, it is a, a crazy situation developing very fast because if you remember a few uh, days ago or last week, the uh, after the Yemeni resistance and the government of Sana'a um, threw ballistic missiles and drones on much of the infrastructure, uh, oil infrastructure of the Saudis that deal, uh, you know, supplies their the local market and threatened to hit all the uh, export 
ports uh, that the Saudis have uh, within three days if there is no ceasefire and an opening lifting of the siege on Yemen. Of course, uh, the Saudis announced a ceasefire of themselves and supposed lifting of the siege on the airport and the ports, seaports of Yemen. And uh, now, out of the blue, the Saudis seem to have decapitated their hotel hostage, President Hadi, that has been governing so uh, his imaginary country from a hotel in Riyadh for uh, since uh, he, his exile, and uh, replaced him with a governing council. Now, remember the Saudis um, were offered, just before this war started, the Ansarullah offered to form a governing council for Yemen, not a president, not to appoint a president that includes everybody, including Hadi. Um, and uh, the, that's when the Saudis refused and started this war. And now uh, the war that they started was, uh, the claim was it's because there's an illegitimate president, Hadi, that needs to be coming back to the power. And now he's not there. So who are they uh, championing? If the president is not there and there's this uh, governing council that's also uh, birthed in a hotel in Riyadh, uh, the, it seems that the Saudis are shooting themselves in the foot. Maybe they're going to bring Zelensky from <laughs> Ukraine and have him be the president of Yemen. I, I was going to guess one. Or, I was going to guess one. Guaido. Oh, Juan yep. Guaido. Juan Guaido. He needs a job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. he, he needs a job. So <laughs> wait, news at 11. <laughs> in all seriousness, where now are they in the ceasefire? Because I've been reading reports I think this was in might have been an Orinoco Tribune or it might have been in Venezuela analysis that there have been repeated violations of the ceasefire and all fingers point to the Saudis. Yes, the Saudis keep on attacking border uh, areas of Yemen and the areas that the uh, Yemeni resistance and the government and Sana'a controls inside what is now uh, the Saudi territory. Um, and although they have supposedly announced the lifting of the siege, uh, the United Nations verified at least three ships carrying uh, fossil fuels, you know, oil products um, and that were supposed to dock in Al-Hudaydah. And it's now three days that they haven't been allowed to actually move towards Yemen by the Saudi coalition. So I think uh, the, you know, power center in the Saudi capital is losing uh, their ability to, you know, deliver on their objectives. They're also flip-flopping between positions. They say one thing, they do another. And this is only adding to their weakness, especially with this decapitation of uh, the Hadi imaginary government and now an even weaker uh, uh, coalition council that they put together that nobody even has a recognition of any of the names on this council is supposed to be negotiating with the uh, Ansarullah government in uh, Sana'a. So their, their, their position is becoming weaker and weaker. And the more they don't deliver on these uh, uh, promises for lifting the siege, uh, that uh, you know it will only strengthen the response of Ansarullah and the government in Sana'a. Really quickly, just to follow up on that, in spite of the violations of the ceasefire, 
Is there any sense of normalcy during this period returning to Yemen? Are ships getting into port? Are planes landing at the airport? Are items being disseminated, cooking oil and other things being disseminated throughout the country? Or is it just as though the ceasefire was never declared? Well, uh, definitely Ansarullah and uh, the National Army are uh, obliging, um, you know, to this ceasefire. There has most of the territory of Yemen has seen um, almost no military confrontation, except, as I noted, the border zones in the north. Uh, and uh, this seems to be uh, the Saudis are trying to take back some of their territory that is captured by the uh, Yemeni army. But in terms of the lifting of the siege until now, there hasn't been one ship that docked or one plane that landed in Sana'a airport. Uh, and therefore, um, it's, uh, it's a very fragile um, you know, uh, ceasefire because the Yemenis clearly want an end to the siege. Um, I understand that a couple of, uh, of uh, U.S. soldiers were injured in a rocket attack in northeastern Syria. Um, have you heard anything about that story? Oh, yeah, this is developing right now. You know, last night uh, there was announcement of at least three missiles hitting the Onoko oil fields in Deir Zor, just uh, north of the city of Deir Zor on the northern shores of the Euphrates, where the American uh, military and its Wahhabi contras are occupying. And uh, originally there was uh, announcements that at least two American soldiers were injured uh, and uh, right now, just a few hours ago, finally, the American uh, military admitted that uh, these uh, missiles actually hit the target and that there is two American soldiers injured. We know now that it is uh, the fifth Syrian army uh, that uh, stationed in the resort uh, that fired those missiles. So... It is a clear um, direction by the Syrian government and the military to engage. And uh, this comes after at least a week of uh, troubles in the area just uh, around the Onoko oil field, the multiple villages that have been besieged by the Kurdish Contras uh, with, you know, that don't have water and electricity. Uh, and um, the, the villages across the resort mobilized to break the siege and bring uh, aid to the civilians inside. So the situation on the ground between the Kurdish contrast and the uh, native indigenous population, the Arab and Assyrian population, is very, very uh, fragile right now. And it's at any moment, as we see, the Syrian military is... Uh, responding to the will of the people on the ground. Israel's ruling coalition loses majority as whip steps down, and I hope I pronounce this correctly. Idit Salman, a lawmaker from Israeli Prime Minister Bennett's party, is switching sides after deal with opposition leader Netanyahu. She will run in his slate in the next election and promised the role of health minister. She's the chairwoman of the government, abruptly announced her resignation last night or yesterday morning, leaving it with 60 lawmakers. What does this do other than throw the colonial Zionist government of Israel uh, into, into more turmoil? 
Yeah, I mean, look, uh, we have to also remember that there's uh, part of it is this drama for local consumption. The Zionists, all of them in this uh, government, agree that they want to kill as many Arabs and steal as much of their land as possible. Uh, but when they get to a point where it's it's clear that any of their activities uh, towards that goal will trigger a confrontation, um, just in the situation as we see right now, we're in Ramadan, uh, multiple uh, members of the Knesset have attempted to uh, invade the Aqsa Mosque. There's clashes every night in old Jerusalem. Uh, there's multiple attacks, as we saw, uh, on Zionist colonists uh, in the lead up to Ramadan. And so what is this, uh, you know, multiple Zionist parties? They play this game in order to justify the eventual uh, suppression and attacks on the Palestinians by uh, saying that this is the only way to strengthen the internal solidarity of the state. It's a game. Uh, and it's um, you know clear that uh, it's it's for the internal consumption and the consumption of the West because remember when the next uh, uh, you know massacre happens of Palestinian civilians, then the the Western media and the Western elite can blame it on this internal conflict and not on the root issue of colonialism and Zionism as a supremacist movement. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. TASS reports China warns U.S. over arms supplies to Taiwan. Beijing is alarmed at the military and technical cooperation between the U.S. and Taiwan. How serious of a problem is this? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a writer and professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University, Dr. Ken Hammond. As always, Ken, welcome back. Great to have a chance to chat. According to TASS, China sent a serious remonstrance to the U.S. over Washington's approval of arms deliveries to Taiwan to the tune of $95 million and for helping Taipei service Patriot surface-to-air missile systems. This is according to the Chinese Defense Ministry reported this earlier today. Ken, how, particularly with your historic perspective or historical perspective, how serious of a problem is this? And as I understand it, the United States has a tendency to sell countries like Taiwan old, if not antiquated systems. So does that factor into this in any way, shape or form? 
Well, it's a it's a serious problem, and and of course this latest uh, sale, uh, uh, which is going to go through in the next month of nine, about ninety five million dollars worth of beer, comes on two earlier episodes in the Biden administration, uh, which is only a little over a year old. One for a hundred million, and an initial one for seven hundred and fifty million. So this is this is the latest installment of what is a, a fairly hefty package of uh, weapons sales to uh, to Taiwan. And, and of course, that's just problematic on the face of it, because uh, beginning in 1972 and, and repeated in, in a couple of subsequent uh, agreements, the United States made commitments to recognize and respect the one China policy that. China is one country. Taiwan's part of China. The United States should not be interfering in the internal affairs of China, should be respecting the sovereignty and territorial integrity of China. And even as recently as last November, President Biden himself paid lip service to this in his video conference with Xi Jinping. And yet his administration, and not just his administration, this has been a bipartisan effort over previous administrations, has continued to to violate the terms of the Shanghai communique and the subsequent agreements and uh, has uh, sold weapons on, a, on, a, on an escalating scale. We're now seeing not just the sales of, of the hardware, but this involves uh, you know, support staff. It involves American military personnel who will be functioning in Taiwan. Uh, to uh, to you know install maintain and and you know keep up these uh, these weapon systems so it's clearly it's clearly a violation of of both the explicit terms and the fundamental principles of international relations that the United States has publicly committed itself to respecting but you know the United States doesn't have a very good history of honoring the agreements that it makes with other countries so that's that's one way in which it's problematic but there's also the question you raise of you know what exactly is the quality of this equipment what is the United States selling certainly the United States is not in the position of of, uh, of putting out on the market its own very latest developments this is a pattern that ironically enough, goes way back to the mid-19th century when China first began to try to modernize its own military in the face of the onslaught of Western imperialism. The British were happy to sell China weapons then, but they were always at least two generations, sometimes three generations out of date. There's no reason for the United States to be behaving any differently today as you know, an imperialist power with hegemonic uh, ambitions in the Western Pacific. So I think that, uh, you know, it's it's problematic for China. It's problematic for the local authorities on Taiwan. It's problematic for the American people because it escalates the dangers to us. It's a problem pretty much all around. Let me ask you this. How do you think um, this resonates in light of what's going, you know, through the context of Ukraine. The U, you know, China looks at this and they see what this U.S. is doing on the surface. But when, you know, it's fairly obvious that when this uh, incident, the, when this crisis hit in Russia, when when uh, the, the, the military operation started that, I mean, in Ukraine, Russia found, you know, bio labs and all kinds of things that are kind of looking ugly. And uh, from both sides, from the sides of China saying this thing could be uglier than we think, but also from the perspective of the Taiwanese saying, but we also know if China invades, it's likely that the U.S. is going to leave us to get crushed and simply say, we will, uh, you know, we'll sanction, uh, you know, once you're all killed we'll uh, and destroyed, we will, uh, you know, you'll be martyrs because we'll sanction China, but we ain't helping you out. So what do you think about the, the both sides looking at this? 
Well, I think I think that's a that's a really critical question because, you know, <laughs> the United States in some ways would like nothing more than to to be able to provoke China into some sort of action around Taiwan or in the South China Sea, which would allow the United States to, you know, further point the finger at China. And indeed, if they could, if the United States could somehow provoke or trigger an actual military clash across the Taiwan Straits, from America's uh, elite perspective, that would be great. It would, it would, you know, they would do everything possible to make China be the responsible party, make China look bad. That could be fought out without the Americans having to pay anything, you know, by way of costs. And in fact, of course, it would be an opportunity, you know, for for further uh, arms sales, uh, uh, you know, or at least for the consumption of weapons that had already been sold to Taiwan uh, in the first place. So, you know, the U.S. would love that. The U.S. is, you know, despite all the the public uh, posturing, you know, American policymakers are delighted with the situation. It's not costing us anything. It's making Russia look bad in Western propaganda, and uh, and you know it's it's kind of a kind of a win-win for American imperialism. Uh, so I think that that it's a it's a very very dangerous situation. Uh, of course, you know Taiwan, the Taiwanese authorities should be navigating a little more cautiously than uh, than they have been recently, because it's certainly not in their interest to have anything go down. They they should be reading the the tea leaves pretty clearly. The United States is never going to step in to actually militarily intervene there. That would be disastrous for the United States. So, you know, do they want to be the pawns in an American power game? Sadly, some of them apparently seem to. But I think the vast majority of people on Taiwan would rather, you know, live their lives, go about their business and resolve the differences between the local authorities and the central government, you know, in their own time and in their own way. Which again is what was agreed to in the in the communiques between the United States and China uh, through the period of establishing diplomatic relations. You just mentioned reading the tea leaves, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, but using your understanding of history to project forward the potential of problems, what's the likelihood that China would take offensive action against Taiwan? And also with that, we know that the United States has now just announced this new Sentinel nuclear-capable ICBM, and Garland and I were talking offline, and he said, yeah, and North uh, Korea has, you know, just tested another missile, but the United States is the only one that ever used one. So your thoughts on what's the likelihood that China is going to do anything offensively in a military context? Well, I think it's highly unlikely that China would, would, you know, would take offensive measures on its own. I think that the danger is, you know, when you ratchet up the tension so mm-hmm. high, uh, you know, the possibility for some inadvertent action, for something to, to trigger a larger clash becomes greater. But it's not in China's interest to, to attack Taiwan. They don't want to attack Taiwan. Taiwanese people are Chinese people. Taiwan is part of China. They don't want to have conflict and destruction and all that sort of stuff right on their own land amongst their own people. If the United States is able to, you know, continue its provocative actions and if 
you know, it's it's minions, uh, you know, amongst the Taiwanese local authorities should should take some sort of decisive measure like an like an outright declaration of independence. Uh, you know, the, the authorities on the mainland might see themselves as having no other real options other than to to preclude that kind of a step. But they're certainly not going to do that in any kind of uh, or at least I would be greatly surprised if they were to do that, if they were to launch offensive activities against Taiwan. Any any military action involving the Taiwan Straits, I think, would would be uh, I think it would be better seen as as a a reaction against efforts by the United States to to split the island away from the rest of the country. You are a professor of East Asian and global history. When was the last time China invaded a country? Uh, well, the last time that there was military conflict between China and another country that could in any way be called an invasion would have been a brief clash in 1979 with Vietnam. Okay. Uh, that was only a, a few weeks, and it was uh, you know a mild incursion across uh, across the border, in a time when Vietnam had itself invaded Cambodia, which mm-hmm. was allied with China. You know, it was a very complex right. Uh, situation at the time. China has no so, history. So that could have been invading that, other countries. To, to that point, that then could have been, I hate to draw these kind of parallels, but similar in some regards to Russia and Ukraine now. We could have that conversation. Well, we absolutely could. Okay. I mean, again, the, the situation with Ukraine has been the response of, of, of a Russian government that has in many ways, very patiently and repeatedly warned NATO and the United States that its continued provocations, its continued expansion would eventually be too much, that they would cross a line, that a threshold would be breached. And that's what happened. You know, and, and the idea that, that this is some sort of unprovoked, mindless uh, you know, aggression is just absurd. So, and and yeah, that's the I, point I, I was that, really that's the point I was really trying to to flush out is China does not have a history of unilaterally attacking other countries the way the United States does. Exactly. And uh, the other thing I think is, and we we got about two minutes, I think China also sees Ukraine in, a, in, in, in one context as a proxy war with the United States figuring – if Russia does is not successful in their plans, then the U.S. will see that as the kind of win, and then they can move on and they can hurt Russia. I think they've already been kind of somewhat thwarted. But at any rate, you're, we got about a minute and a half. Your thought on how China sees Ukraine from that perspective? Well, you know, there was a very interesting statement recently by the Chinese ambassador in Ukraine talking about the friendship that China has with Ukraine, talking about its economic relationship with Ukraine, how they want to be able to help the Ukrainian people out. For China, you know, this is a conflict between Russia and Ukraine that has very specific origins, not in Ukraine so much itself as in the manipulation of certain elements within Ukraine by NATO and the United States. And, you know, from China's point of view, this is, you know, China's not happy about this war. They're, I don't even think, you know, Russia is particularly happy about the right. war. But there comes a point where, you know, the Russians felt they had to take action, and they did so. China would like to see it negotiated, would like to see the fighting stop, would like to provide humanitarian assistance and, and diplomatic assistance in that process. So I, I think that's the Chinese perspective on, on the situation uh, uh, at this point. 
Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Always glad to be here. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. President Barack Obama returned to the White House and refers to Joe Biden as vice president. (laughs) But wait, that was a joke. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a national organizer for action for Assange, Steve Poikin. And Steve, welcome back. Great to be back, gentlemen. So was the return of Barack Obama to the White House as innocuous as, well, it made perfect sense since they were highlighting the success of the Affordable Care Act? Or do you think that there was more to this than just the return of a former president to the Biden White House? Well, I mean, it's the the home of statecraft and, and statecraft, right? So there, there's going to be you know, chatter no matter what. But let's be perfectly honest: the the Biden administration has I I don't know, man. It's if you give a one legged <laughs> running back the football, do you expect a first down? Do you expect a fumble? I, I mean, how, you know, we're it's so. When Barack Obama shows up and they treat him like the Beatles and and they treat Joe Biden, you know, I mean, really like, you know, like he's the the last kid to get picked in gym class. It it seems to be that at least the press corps is desperate for someone that, that they can look to that completes a sentence that isn't a national embarrassment every time that he opens his mouth or goes somewhere. And this is after four years of Trump where they spent the entire time telling everyone he was a national embarrassment. He, he, you know, destroyed the country's reputation everywhere he went. Joe Biden's doing that all on his own without the press's help. So when Barack Obama shows up, they're probably like, oh, the cool kid's back and we can hang out with them again. But Steve, my suspicions are, of course, you know, I'm being a little conspiracy, uh, uh, you know, a bit of a a, a conspiracy theorist, but taking the circumstantial evidence, and that is after 14 or however many months of Biden's administration, it is clearly disastrous on any every level that you could possibly imagine. I'm I'm sure that there are those factions within the ruling elite who would feel much more comfortable with another option. I'm trying to say this in a nice way. Um, is it unreasonable to suspect that there could be activity afoot that uh, would 
present, supplant. yes, supplant, um, <laughs> dear Mr. Biden, and provide maybe another possible option, even if maybe Kamala Harris was a placeholder to do what she was told or somebody else showed up. But do you think it's paranoid to think that they're thinking about um, moving moving on to a, a relief pitcher, shall we say? And, and to that point, Steve, in using Garland's this baseball analogy, <laughs> uh, when I look at the bench— I don't see any – when I look to the bullpen, I don't see any arms warming up. I don't see any arms in the bullpen. Well, they don't have any, and that's the problem. If you're looking to supplant or replace Joe Biden, you're, you're supplanting him with an actual plant. You could do just putting a house plant on the desk <laughs> at the Oval Office and saying, this is the president until we can figure this out. We don't really know. We're we're kind of winging it. We thought we had people. It turns out we don't. It, uh, the, the Democrats would be foolish at this point to not consider replacing Joe Biden as an option. At the same time, it they can't bring Barry back. The, the the Kamala Harris, when they introduced her to the people, recall they wanted her to be president. But as soon as they introduced her to America, America went, ew, no, <laughs> we'll pass. And they've got, you know, the, the Pete Buttigieg that they're trying to get some promise out of or some rock star. Oh, I forgot about, of, but I forgotten about Mayor. Yeah, he's a guy suggesting that people buy uh, a 40000 or $50,000 electric vehicle yeah, to I save, forgot about gas, yeah. save $80 yeah. worth of gas yeah. a month. Yeah, if yeah, if you can't afford gas, just go out and buy a Tesla. <laughs> All right, <laughs> well, somebody with their finger on the pulse of America. <laughs> and and we're we're their uh, baseball analogies are running amok because today is opening day for baseball season. And when you said bringing Barry back, you weren't talking about Barry Bonds. Yeah. Let's be, I was not. Okay, all right. The Jerusalem... Well, couldn't do any worse. <laughs> Might as well. <laughs> Give him a shot. As, as a Cubs fan, though, I'm all for bringing Barry back to, to you know Chicago. Maybe we could get a chance there. The Jerusalem Post reports Blinken not overly optimistic with the prospects of Iran nuclear deal. Blinken... I'm not overly optimistic at the prospects of actually getting an agreement to uh, conclusion. Representative Gottmer says we need a longer and stronger deal, not one that is shorter and weaker. The Iran nuclear deal, along with the Affordable Care Act, being two major accomplishments of the Obama administration, the Biden administration, in my humble opinion, has totally, totally botched this opportunity. Steve Poikin, in your thoughts? Well, they absolutely have to the point to where major Democratic senators, I think Bob Menendez leading the charge, is walking away from every commitment and promise and humble brag that they were giving themselves not even a year ago. It, it, the United States, it seems, uh, with Ukraine, with what's going on with Imran Khan in Pakistan, with uh, the the flubbing of the Iran deal over and over and over again seems to be on a crash course to anger every nuclear armed nation on the planet, and, and that or ones that they claim are pursuing nuclear arms. And we've had this conversation before on the show. If Iran wants a nuclear weapon, they can have it by the end of the week. They they've got the know how, they've got the equipment, they've got all everything they need to do so. They don't want to do that. So for the U.S. to put them in a situation where it makes them not only look like a, a once again, 
an aggressor nation that doesn't want to cooperate and the u.s is just throwing its hands up in frustration because darn it we keep trying and it doesn't go anywhere is incredibly disingenuous and shows a complete i i i don't know almost uh the U.S. foreign policy is almost incoherent at this point. Steve, the other thing is this. The U.S. is these sanctions are creating a kind of a new economic order wherein you can see on the horizon there will be a new economic order where Iran can deal with the Asian countries, the African countries, the South American countries, etc. They're not going to need the SWIFT system at some point, And it's starting now because they're selling as much oil apparently now as they were before the sanctions. They're going to just say, look, shove off. We don't need we're doing fine. You can keep your sanctions on or not. They don't affect us anymore. There's this new order is creating an environment where the there's no more dollar hegemony. So I think that to some extent, Iran's like, you know, we'll play along with this thing as long as you need to or whatever. If it makes you feel good. But we're just marking time anyway, because the world's going in another direction. Steve, it really does seem that way. And, and Garland, you and I have talked about this. As as the world seems to transition into uh, an economy where the countries who have the real resources are the ones who get to call the shots this time, and, and the countries that have traditionally relied on the exploitation and extraction of those resources through violence uh, or through proxy wars, um, and have made their money on speculation and extortion, it kind of fade in terms of hegemony, um, the U.S. as, you know, essentially a rogue nuclear state uh, at that point is going to find itself, I imagine, on the end of a lot of the sanctions that we've spent the last half century levying on people we don't like. You know, I, I keep asking this question and about you made reference to Iran not interested in a nuclear weapon. And Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa basically making it very clear that for the Republic of Iran to develop a nuclear weapon violates one of the fundamental tenets of Islam. And I don't see or hear any real substantive analysis of the importance of that fatwa. It, a, as a Catholic, I look at it as ignoring a cyclical, a cyclical of the Pope. You, you not, you don't do that. You, you don't, you don't tread into those waters lightly. But there does not seem to be. I mean, you know it. I know it. They're not doing it because they deem it not only to be illegal. They deem it to be immoral, and against the fundamental tenets of their religion. But that doesn't seem to carry any weight. Is that out of ignorance or is that out of just simply ignoring a very obvious reality? Well, I, ultimately, I think what it comes down to is that I, the, the Western ego, particularly the U.S. ego and the hubris that has driven the foreign policy that we are infamous for, um, is centered in the the do as I say, not as I do mentality. And when it comes to religion in particular, far too many of our leaders have professed faith and lived lives entirely contradictory to That's that. That's a great point. So when we hear another nation say, 
we are we are by a tenet of faith, by a condition uh, of our spiritual being, not going to partake in this particular activity. The U.S. will hear that and go, "Oh yeah, you know, I mean, we say that too." But uh, every time the cameras are off or somebody's back's turned, we you know go and do drugs or do everything that the book says not to do. But, but wait a minute. So but why you know what? We believe you. But but to that point. One of the things that we always want to hold out against Iran is that it's a theocracy. Oh, you can't trust them because they're a theocracy. And they're evil because they're a theocracy. And madmen. They're madmen because they're a theocracy. But when they say we can't do this because we're a theocracy, (laughs) now all of a sudden it doesn't make any sense, Steve. Well, it kind of goes back to the do as we say, not as we do (laughs) (laughs) sort of approach to, to Western governance. And that, I mean, this is the same U.S. that, that you know, told us forever that, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein was the most criminally insane, dangerous madman on the planet who controlled the most, you know, third most powerful army in the world that also we could topple within moments where we would be greeted as liberators and given hearts and flowers and all that kind of stuff. Now, Vladimir Putin uh, has been downgraded to Asian as a Mongol, according to the Wall Street Journal. And he is the most diabolical madman, literally insane, uh, uh, you know, criminal, murderous war criminal on the planet, who also is, is in charge of an inept, weak army that no matter what they could do to throw uh, war at the stalwart Ukrainian noblemen who are fending them off with sticks and hope, yeah, they're, they're being decimated. So we're we're supposed to believe all things at once when the reality of it is usually uh, far afield from the entire picture they're painting. Steve Poikin, and as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Oh, well, thank you very much, Wilmer. You guys have a fantastic day. Thank you, Steve. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Turkey transfers Khashoggi murder trial to Saudi Arabia. The move will almost certainly end the last case aimed at serving justice for an incredibly heinous crime that grew and drew global outrage. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African-American studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So this decision announced earlier today was a blow to human rights advocates who had hoped that this trial would at least make public more evidence of who was involved and how Mr. Ashoji was killed and dismembered by a Saudi hit squad in 2018 inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. When I read this story, understanding the 
increased dialogue that's, for example, going on between Syria and the Emirates, and there's more dialogue now with the Saudis. The Saudis are refusing to take Joe Biden's calls. All of this back and forth dialogue, it just made me wonder, what is Erdogan's play here? Who is he playing to and why? And Dr. Horn, is that a valid question to ask? It's a valid question, and I'm afraid to say it reflects the incoherence of Ankara's foreign policy. Recall that before the unrest that erupted in Syria a few years ago, that Turkey and Syria were quite close. Uh, in fact, the families of President al-Assad and President Erdogan actually vacationed together. But alas, that did not last long as Turkey then began to sponsor and promote these religious zealots who have sought to make a hash out of Damascus. But that particular policy, in a sense, has backfired insofar as, as you suggested in your opening remarks, uh, President al-Assad has been welcomed in the Emirates and is breaking out of the diplomatic isolation that Turkey sought to impose uh, after first embracing uh, Damascus. And then you have the incoherence of Turkey's policy towards Israel. Recall a few years ago, and you can see it still online, I thought that Mr. Erdogan was going to punch out publicly a leading Israeli public figure on, on a stage at a forum uh, because of Israeli depredations against Palestinians. And recall that you had Turkish nationals who were actually roughhoused and manhandled by Israelis. But in the past few weeks, Turkey and President Erdogan has welcomed to Turkey the president of Israel, speaking of Mr. Herzog. And then Turkey has not won any favors within the European Union, which it is still bidding to join. Of course, Turkey is the eastern flank of NATO, and we'll discuss that in a moment. But Turkey still has very complicated relations with France, for example, the bulwark of the European Union. Uh, recall the clashes between Turkey and France with regard to Lebanon, with regard to Cyprus. And a footnote with regard to France, which is not the subject of our discussion today, but which has its own problems, but take careful and close attention to the French elections that take place in a few days, because if either the right-wing or the left-wing challenger do better as expected, you, that may portend a shift in French policy towards this crisis in Eastern Europe. Take careful attention. But back to our thread. Uh, Turkey also has complicated relations with the United States of America. Uh, recall that Washington was quite upset when uh, Turkey bought this anti-aircraft system uh, from Russia. Uh, there was serious talk about uh, tightening sanctions against Turkey. Recall that Turkey is upset because in the summer of 2016, Washington was accused of sponsoring and fomenting a coup that almost toppled Mr. Erdogan. Recall that his chief opponent, speaking of Mr. Erdogan's chief opponent, lives comfortably in the Poconos of Pennsylvania, speaking of Batula Gulen, and Washington has refused adamantly Turkey's wish that he be extradited to stand trial. And 
Turkey seems to also be playing both sides of the fence with regard to this Eastern European crisis. Recall that uh, Mr. Erdogan uh, was embracing uh, President Zelensky just before February 24, 2022, in the beginning of the Russian intervention uh, in the Ukraine. Recall that uh, Mr. Erdogan has supplied deadly drones to Ukraine uh, that have shed Russian blood uh, profusely. But at the same time, uh, Turkey somehow has managed to uh, present itself as a mediator with regard to this conflict and, in fact, has hosted a mediation sessions uh, in Turkey itself. And then Saudi Arabia, on the other end of this bargain, I'm sure you heard the latest news about uh, the Saudis uh, trying to somehow resolve this Yemen quagmire that they stumbled into, which has led to the deaths of tens of thousands of Yemenis, conservatively speaking, in recent years, and also has resulted in Yemeni attacks on Saudi oil facilities, uh, which may be a factor in terms of global petroleum production uh, going forward. And then, of course, uh, the Saudis are upset with Washington, their ultimate benefactor and protector, because the Saudis are upset that Washington is trying to reignite the nuclear accord with Iran, uh, which the Saudis are, of course, rather hostile to because the Saudis see the Iranians as supporting the Houthis in Yemen, who are battling the Saudis uh, in Yemen as we speak. And so there are a lot of complications and complexities with regard to this deal, whereby the Saudis will be receiving, supposedly to stand trial, but don't hold your breath, those men who were involved in killing the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. But at the same time, what the deal reveals is the abject weaknesses of both participants in this deal, Mr. Erdogan on the one hand, and the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, or Mohammed Bonesaw, as he is oftentimes referred to, uh, on the other hand. You know, I, I did want to ask you, and I don't know if these things are connected, but many of the, the things you were discussing um, were, you know, emblematic of the chaos that has resulted from um, the Biden administration's foreign policy. Recently, we see the um, Barack Obama, former president, show up in the um, in the White House, coming back on scene. He's been like the uh, the submarine service running silent and running deep for quite a while. Um He's been hanging out with Kamala Harris, and um, there are those who speculate that there could be some kind of activity afoot um, based on the concern of the many, many problems, the myriad of problems we find ourselves into barely over a year into the um, into President Biden's um, administration. Your thoughts on uh, President Obama showing up on the scene and perhaps maybe those some of us are just overly paranoid. Your thoughts? Well, you may recall that when he had that session in the East Room with Mr. Biden, in opening his remarks, uh, Mr. Obama referred to Mr. Biden as, quote, Mr. Vice President, unquote. And then he laughed and said he was joking. But that's the old Trump trick, to say what you really think. And then when there's an objection, to say that you were joking. Certainly, Mr. Biden is in over its head. 
In terms of detailing the myriad problems of Erdogan and Mohammed bin Salman, we could have gone on twice as long with regard to the myriad problems that Mr. Biden faces. In a sense, these problems are structural. What I mean is, uh, going forward, in in coming decades, I'm sure that historians looking back will see that what U.S. imperialism was trying to do was like King Canute trying to stop the Chinese wave. Uh, That is to say, somehow trying to arrest what seems to be the unstoppable rise of the People's Republic of China to being the premier nation on planet Earth. But you could make an argument that the Washington starting this brush fire in Eastern Europe is a way to weaken China's major partner, speaking of Russia, without confronting China directly and frontally, because to confront China directly and frontally, you'd have to confront Microsoft and Tesla and GM and Starbucks and KFC and Apple and all the rest. And so, in a sense, you could say that Mr. Biden's problems are not always the result of his ham-fisted diplomacy and his ceaseless uh, verbal gaffes. But on the other hand, uh, that might be too generous and too kind uh, to Mr. Biden, which I think also helps to fuel these rumors and speculation about him somehow being supplanted by another person. Of course, uh, constitutional impediments uh, prevent a third term for Mr. Obama, as far as I can ascertain, uh, speaking as an attorney. Uh, But as you know, uh, the ruling class has a way to get around legal niceties (laughs) if they want to execute a so-called policy. Following up to that point, because Garland and I were talking about this earlier today offline, you talk about supplanting Biden. I'm looking at the Democratic bench and there's nobody on it. And so we were also talking about what appears to be a dispute starting to make itself public between what, what Garland and I considered to be the Clinton faction of the Democratic Party and the Obama faction of the Democratic Party. We've seen Hillary Clinton's face uh, emerging on our screens of late. And I believe that when that happens, that's not by accident. Those are trial balloons that are set up to try to get sense of what the public reaction will be if they try to uh, present her as a viable option. Because to your point, Joe Biden's in over his head. So many still wonder when we get to 2024, what uh, who's going to be the Democratic nominee for president. So do you see this as a reality? Is that a viable course of analysis to take? Well, it's not premature to begin looking ahead to the post-Biden era. Uh, We, in this conversation, although I know you've been dealing with it uh, on your program, have not talked about Hunter Biden's laptop. Right. And all of, of the scandals that it is revealing about the various misdeeds embedded in the Biden family. And we are understandably and justifiably uh, talking about the prospect of one Donald J. Trump in an orange jumpsuit. Well, you know that the Republicans will be seeking vengeance with bloodthirstiness if that eventuates. And they will be going with a vengeance uh, after Mr. Biden, particularly if, as polls suggest, they reclaim the House or the Senate, and you will have endless investigations of Mr. Biden and his family, 
which inevitably will unearth all manner of dirty tricks and dark secrets. Just to follow up to that point, what about what we see as a intra-party struggle between the Clinton faction and the Obama faction? Well, I, I think that you cannot rule that out because the United States has a surplus of opportunistic politicians. But in a sense, it reminds me of, of the book that I'm working on right now that'll be on shelves uh, rather shortly about Texas in the 19th century, where I detect a distinction without a difference between hardcore conservatives and proto-fascists. That distinction without a difference, it seems to me, could easily be applied to the so-called Clinton factions and Obama factions. Uh, That is to say, ultimately, we're talking about uh, neoliberal politicians with a smirk. And I'm not sure what the substantive or palpable difference it will mean to the living standards of the suffering peoples of the United States of America if either faction becomes ascendant. And as we get out, uh, as I said to you a, a minute ago, I look at the Democratic bench. I don't see anybody on it. And a lot of people listening might say, well, Kamala Harris, nah, she's not ready for AAA ball, let alone Major League ball. I don't even really see her as a double-A ball player. Uh, in, in, the, in that baseball metaphor, she couldn't hit a grapefruit with a snow shovel, as they say. <laughs> Dr. Gerald Horn, <laughs> sir, thank you so much for your—I like that. Thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you. Depends on how much spin is on that grapefruit. Uh, You have been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 